Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 89. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, today's guest is Eugenia Lee. She's on the line and will be joining us in just a moment. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry. And since you love poetry, too, because you're here tonight, please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Turn on the notification bell. You know the drill. There's all that kind of stuff that you can do that helps us out by letting the computers know that you like what you're watching. And that helps more people see what you're watching. And so uh, do your part by clicking something. And it'd be very much appreciated. As I mentioned, today's guest is Eugenia Lee. And um, Eugenia was the winner of the 2013 Neil Postman Award for Metaphor, one of my, our favorite awards. It's an war- award that uh, we give out once a year in honor of Neil Postman, uh, who sort of was the champion of the metaphor. And maybe the, the metaphor is the sort of fundamental unit of poetry, maybe. The, the fundamental unit of meaning-making is what Neil Postman liked to talk about. And, um, and Eugenia is just such a brilliant poet when it comes to metaphor. Uh, her poem, Destination Beautiful, is just full of wonderful metaphors. You've probably already read it now. Um, and so is her book. This is her book that came out a few years ago. I'll put it on screen now. This is Blood, Sparrows, and Sparrows. And um, Eugenia's also just been all over the place with um, awards and publications. Um, too long list. You'll see it in the show notes below, though. I mean, she's been the uh, winner of the Late Night Library's 2015 debut Litzer Prize in Poetry, a finalist for the National Poetry Series and the Yale Younger Series of Poets, publications all over the place, um, studied poetry at, at Sarah Lawrence College, and has served as a teaching artist with a variety of organizations, including the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund's undocumented youth group RAISE. And you can find her at eugenialeigh.com. That's U-E-U-G-E-N-I-A-L-E-I-G-H.com, eugenialeigh.com. And here she is, Eugenia Lee. Hey, how you doing, Eugenia? Hi, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. It's just my pleasure after all these years. I mean, I've been a huge fan of your work for so long, since you won that award, which was just such Aww. a, that, I mean, that poem is just um, so well written. And I was sort of looking forward to more of your work ever since then. And uh, this book, Blood, Sparrows, and Sparrows, came out from Four Way Books. Um, do you want to start out with a poem uh, from the book? Sure. I'll start out with Psalm 107. Psalm 107. Praise you for that blanket. Praise you for the stranger who draped it over my mother, her naked body perched, pregnant in the snow. Praise you for my father who said he'd kill her if she ran. And for my mother who didn't run like a mannequin or a stupid dog. Praise you for her skin, the color of cold jellyfish, her psalms careening from her throat to her belly, where your fingers, praise your fingers, forged my unformed body. Praise you for my bloodline, for the savages and the idiots whom you love the same. Thank you for the bones you stacked in me to brave this unsettling. That was Psalm 101 from uh, Blood Sparrows. One hundred seven. Psalm one hundred seven. I'm sorry. From Blood Sparrows and Sparrows. Thanks for the correction. Um, do you want to set the stage? I think I have the um, one hundred one freeway in my head. That's why I saw it out of the corner uh, of my eye. Is one hundred one <laughs> down here in LA, where you're from oh, originally? I don't miss, yeah, I yeah. don't miss the one hundred one freeway at all. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. When did you move out to New York from LA? 
Um, I first moved out in 2008, which is, I guess, 13 years now. That's mm-hmm. amazing. But um, two years after that, I got cold feet, moved back to L.A., and then that summer I realized that New York had changed me, so then I moved back for good. So mm-hmm. I've been here since then. Yeah, and, and where do you feel more at home? You, do you like the New York sort of pace? Now I am much more at home in New York. I moved a lot growing up. I, I moved almost every year of my life. And um, I was only in L.A. for maybe about six years. Um, but I was in the Southern California area for about 12, 13 years. So I guess now I've been in New York almost the same amount of time as I was in Southern California. So hmm. Yeah, same here. We start, I started in New York and, and switched back to L.A. Um, Do you miss New York? Uh, well, I was in Western New York, uh, but okay. so it's very, very different in New York City. Yeah. But uh, I do. I would move back in a heartbeat. I, I moved to the, oh. the closest area that's most like <laughs> most like Western New York in uh, in California, I think. Yeah, but, you um, found snow. I did. Yeah. Yeah, I missed <laughs> it. Um, do you want to explain a little bit? I mean, this book, I just read it um, this afternoon, and it is an, an intense experience of a book. It's one of those books that you kind of hold your breath as you're reading all the way through, and it's so open and honest um, and personal. Um, do you want to just explain a little bit about what the book is about? Sure. Um, I feel like I should have warned you beforehand. I think when I wrote the book, I was in my 20s, and I was thinking a lot about Leonard Cohen, who said that, um, I think he said something like he feels that people should have, he should pass out little razor blades when people listen to his music. And sometimes I, I feel like that's something that I should have done, or maybe, maybe not, maybe I should take away all the razor blades. But, um, so this book chronicles the, I guess my family history, which is a history of abuse and, um, domestic violence and, um, a lot of it is comes from and is inspired by my actual childhood. Uh, my father was in prison several times for domestic violence. Um, and a lot of it is also about the way a young adult self really reconciles the trauma that she has experienced. And, you know, I'm speaking now many years in uh, with the with the benefit of hindsight, um, and the benefit of therapy, which I hadn't had, hadn't had when I wrote this book. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these poems were like the 20 something year old self working through that trauma and trying to understand how am I supposed to maintain or even know how to have positive relationships? How am I, why am I repeating these cycles of violence, um, in these relationships? And, um, really wrestling with that. Um, something I don't mention in the book is also that my father was a Christian minister. And so a lot of the, um, that complication comes through in the book, I think, um, as a minister's daughter who at church really had to pretend that everything was great and we came from a beautiful family and that's what everyone believed. But, uh, behind closed doors, it was a whole other story. Um, and so I, I think that a lot of like the wrestling with faith, comes through in this book as well. I wrote it mostly when I was an atheist or an agnostic and um, very, very far from my faith or um, just not having any faith at all. Um, but ironically, it was during that time that I wrote more about God or that God somehow showed up in my poems than during the times when um, I would consider myself a person of faith. So um, I guess that's sort of the gist of this mm-hmm. book. And uh, how did you, would you say that 
it, it was difficult to go into the subject matter? Or were you writing other poems and then you started writing these poems? Or, or was this what led you into writing poetry in the first place? No, I, you know, that's a great question. I wasn't writing this story at all. Um, when I applied for, to MFA programs or just started writing poetry in general, I was writing terrible relationship poems or um, very, very vague abstract work, a lot of experimental poem, like really experimental on the page, um, experimental um, with images. But my first workshop teacher was Lauren Basilar. She's in Santa Barbara, actually. She's the California, um, she's the poet laureate of Santa Barbara currently. And she, I remember, took one of my poems and dug dug and dug until she figured out my story. And this was during one of our one-on-one conferences. And I remember just sobbing. And she was like, you need to tell this story. You need to tell the story of your father and all that you've experienced. And, and then I just didn't know if I could handle it. And I remember crying in her office and she looked at me and she said, um, you can cry now and be a poet later. And mm-hmm. she was like, think of me as your mom here away from home first, which was, you know, such a bomb to a 24 year old who had a very estranged relationship with her mother. Um, and then she was the one who sort of like pressed me and said, this is where your book is. This is where your story is. You need to figure out a way to access them. And so, um, I started working with people I knew who would, who would challenge me in that way. Like Laurent Bossalar, Marie Howe, women who, um, knew how to tell the truth, I guess, in a way that was very brave and very uh, bold. Hmm. Well, it's, you know, you look for books that are compelling, you know, that make you just draw. And, and this this um, this book just draws you through the book. It's, it's so compelling. Um, probably the most compelling, mm-hmm. I would say, books that I've read in, in a several, you know, many months, I think, on this, on this series. Um, do you want to do a couple more poems to sort of give more of a feel of, of what's going on here? Sure. Um, I'll read. Uh, oh, and I should let see. you know, Eugenia, that the um, the microphone is sort of close to wherever the book is, so it's kind of jostling the the pick is picking up the sound a little bit. So oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Is this a little bit better? That's, that's better. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So I'll read uh, the deposition on page four. The deposition. All I recall from 1991, a stairwell sprouts from a cafeteria to a playground. Jesus sits at the bend. As blobs of children rumble ahead, I turn to ask if he'd like company. I'm all right, Jesus says. Go have fun. What does it mean that I remember dreams and not real life? I was born with a black hole in my brain. The first time I noticed the hole, I was 12. In the back office of a glorified daycare, I said nothing until the skittish social worker admitted, yes, that's a two-way mirror, and behind it, a thousand suits are whittling your words to knife your father's spine in court. Later that day, my mother shook me, screaming, why did you lie? Why didn't you tell her he beat you across the head? I stared at her. Who did what? Black hole. Last night, the oncologist reduced grandpa's morphine drip to let my sister tilt the phone to a lucid ear. 500 miles away, I rehearsed my breaths. I pictured his sunken chest, plastic tubes linking his lungs to my grandmother's prayers. When did I last see him? I remember grandpa everywhere, 
feeding us, but sometimes I remember him not at all, not even his face. Within the hour, my sister called back to say he died, but first he opened his eyes. My still-life childhood crumbles like a photograph, brittle in the fists of an arsonist. We get 1,000 words per burning photograph, yet this is all I've got. My mother's kneeling shrieks, my father's voice full of boils, my sister's flinching, my wincing, and now, cracking at the edge of my frigid Brooklyn rooftop, I hear all of us blaring from that black hole. That was the deposition. Let's hear another one. This one is Pretty Universe on page eight. Pretty Universe. God stalked me on Marion Avenue, said, you can't fix it. Then, I can't either. That morning, my ceiling lamp had ripped from its cord. Even after I welded the fragments with duct tape, everything felt cracked like your $500 glasses I smashed that winter. So I thought, if I couldn't fix that, what the hell am I doing piecing together your eyes, our crumbling kisses? So I didn't question God. Sometimes God wants to be understood. Sometimes God hates his perfect grammar, his pretty universe. So he'll pluck a butterfly of its left wing, call it art. He'll turn from a hurricane, say, it wasn't me. If artists were created in his image, how often does God abandon his mistakes? The day I stopped talking to you, I said nothing to him too. I cursed my entire drive home. I littered the freeway with fistfuls of tissues while God shuffled his God feet and pretended not to see. And that was Pretty Universe from um, Blood Sparrows and Sparrows from Four Way Books, Eugenia Lee's first book. Um, Eugenia, that poem mentions God. We already, you already mentioned God a little bit, but I, I was sort of wondering if your father um, was some kind of religious figure. Um, what is, huh. How did um, your, your sort of relationship with God evolve through um, the course of this? Um, you know, did, did, do you still feel... Um, like faith there or do you question it because of all the things that happened to you or or how do you sort of conceive of the world now? You know, that's such a complicated question, but such a good one. Um, I remember after one reading, um, uh, an audience member that I didn't know came up to me and he said, either you really love God or you hate God, which is it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I think for a great majority of my life, I was, I was, and, and am still, very angry with the church. Um, I remember there, you know, when it, when my mother pressed charges, which she did several times, it, and it became clear to other church members or elders or, um, other ministers or pastors that, you know, my dad was obviously, you know, doing harm at home and abusing his wife and his children. Um, they would beg my mom to just drop the charges and like, forget about it. And it was a, I think that speaks to a lot of um, toxic church culture, but also toxic Korean church culture. Um, I think a lot of immigrants um, from a lot of different countries really use religion to find community. And I think that happens a lot with um, Koreans is um, they develop these communities in in churches. Um, but some of them can be 
less about the religion, less about the teachings and more about like the culture. Um, and I think that's a lot of what I experienced growing up. And so I would hear people preaching about, you know, Jesus, but I didn't quite understand it until I became a little bit more involved um, with more progressive Christian groups in college that talked a lot more about Jesus, who was the social justice advocate and who, um, you know, advocated for women when women couldn't even testify in court and um, for the marginalized and the people who were not religious. Um, and that really, that really attracted me a lot. But then, um, and I think when I was growing up, my mom would always say, oh, I didn't raise you girls. God raised you. And, and this, and at the time it was comforting, right? Because you have this story and my parents were never around. Um, I was home alone a lot with my sisters, raising them myself as a child. And um, my mom would tell everyone, well, I prayed. And that's why, you know, they all ended up, you know, relatively decent humans. And I think that was comforting. And it was, and it was comforting as I was writing this book and as I was growing up and as I was entering adulthood. But now as a parent, it's infuriating. And I think as a parent now, I see so much, and especially having, you know, gone to therapy and, and gotten a lot more mental health help and having a little bit more of a well-rounded perspective about the trauma that I've experienced. I see that my mom in coping with her own trauma and in being a very, very religious person used a lot of spiritual bypassing, um, which is like a therapy term for using God as a way to avoid pain and avoid suffering. So she would just say, well, God is good and he, he protected us. And so that everything is fine instead of really addressing like, well, actually there was real damage done to your daughters and to you. It might not be very obvious on the surface, but it's there and it comes through in our relationships. Um, and, and now, um, I, I actually do practice a faith of my own. Um, and, and I would call myself a Christian, but it comes with a lot of like, but, but, but I'm not one of those Christians <laughs> and a lot of like, but, but, but like I, you know, I'm not a Trump supporter or, you know, a lot of like explaining myself and explaining why. And also, um, being somebody who really wants to hold like any church that I attend accountable to, um, actually acting on what they preach. Like if you're preaching about love, like, are you actually, um, are you actually, you know, trying to, trying to protect the love of like the people in the community. And so I think, um, it's really important to me to kind of be very vocal about what I believe in, um, outside of my faith. And especially if I'm going to tell people that like I have I have a faith and I'm a person of faith um I also like to you know say things like well but I also um officiated the lesbian wedding of two of my good friends and I and I'm very proud of that I think it's one of the things I'm most proud of and I um can't you know and I wrestle a lot with what some churches not all but some churches will say about our LGBTQIA community, et cetera. And so, you know, I have a lot of extra thoughts on that, but we can talk mm -hmm. about that another time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the other thing, another thing I wanted to ask, and, and I should say too, if anybody has any questions for Eugenia, please leave them in the, in the chat windows on either uh, Facebook or YouTube. I'm watching both. So I will pass along any questions you have uh, later this hour. Um, but uh, can you talk a little bit about 
Um, what do you think the the purpose of your poetry is? That's another thing that I, you know, because you talk to people a lot of the times. Like, like I find myself, this is a this is a dark poetry book. It really is, and um, and I, I find myself drawn to those kind of books that talk about the 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 gritty real stuff that we don't talk about in life. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, there's a lot of criticism of poetry and we get it in, in what we publish in Rattle and, and books get it all the time that like, um, like why would I want to read a book like that? You know what I mean? Um, and so what do you think that the poetry is doing to for us as readers? And like, how do you conceive of, of what, like what are you trying to do when you write a book about this subject? I think what I am trying to do is to give people and give myself permission to say the things that we haven't said for so long. Um, Everyone experiences trauma, maybe not the same kind of trauma, but everyone has experienced something that has caused pain and caused growth in their lives. Um, And up until very recently, mental health and, um, just the aftermath of trauma was very, very um, stereotyped against Mm -hmm. and wasn't as widely accepted. Like if you were getting treatment for mental health or taking medication, people thought of you as less than. I remember in high school when I said I wanted to see a therapist, my mom said, don't do that because then you'll never get a job. Um, Whereas now people speak very openly and, um, you know, I was the executive assistant to C-level executives in finance firms, and I would book their therapist appointments for them, right? It's very out in the open. We talk a lot about it as a culture more. And I think my goal in my poems is to, is to give people permission to speak their truths and to heal from that. Um, I think a lot about how trauma is unprocessed negative emotion. It's negative emotion that we put aside. And until we speak it out loud, until we process it, it will continue to cause pain and have repercussions in our lives. And once we participate in the act of speaking it and act of processing it out loud with others in community, that's when healing begins. And I feel like when we have more examples and um, of people doing this work of healing out in public. I think a lot of um, young contemporary poets are starting to do that. And, um, you know, people get a lot of flack for it. I think um, people associate a lot of that work with either confessional poetry, which has a bad rap. Um, But what I see happening is that people, especially in marginalized communities, young poets are starting to speak their truths in a way that is starting to create healing in these communities, which creates power in those communities. Um, And, you know, that's such a big answer for what I hope my poetry is doing. But I hope that my poetry is just participating in that work that I already see a lot of other poets doing. Yeah, that's a great, great answer. And I think that's what I think at its heart, what poetry really is, is is a, a means of healing, like psychologically. Uh, you know, because because like you mentioned, that trauma um, is unprocessed emotion and, and poetry is one of the ways that we can process that and, and come to terms with it. And reading a book, um, you know, if you relate to the, the story that's going on here, um, even if you haven't you haven't sort of put together yourself in your own way for yourself, reading a book like this really helps. And then writing the book like that or just writing poems, even if you never publish them, mm-hmm. writing poems that that get your your experiences into some kind of manageable like container that's not sort of hidden beneath you under the layers of your your mind is such a, a such an important part of healing i think mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, go ahead if you want to say something else. Well, um, yeah, I do sense that, especially, you know, going through the pandemic, which is a collective trauma that everyone is experiencing now. Um, and so mental health is even more at the forefront. I, I read a study that said that um, if you've been diagnosed with COVID, then chances are very, very high that you'll also be diagnosed with depression eventually. Um, and so it's just a topic that's going to keep coming up. And, um, and when, and I think that's why, you know, in these times, people really do turn to poetry. And that could explain also why the inaugural poet, Amanda Gorman, had such an impact on the culture in a way that inaugural poets never have before. And she she was on the cover of Vogue magazine and is just um, really creating these ripples. And I feel like people are hungry for um, for permission to tell the truth and for um, access to healing in this way. Yeah, yeah, really well said. Um, do you want to share a couple more poems? Sure. So I'll read... Um, Destination Beautiful, the poem that was in Rattle in 2013, on page 63. Destination Beautiful. I've come to hunt a time capsule at the west end of Sunset Boulevard, to rummage the beach for remnants of old friends who've abandoned each other to sprout new families. Suddenly, everyone has cleaved to strangers made of diamonds and cake, capable of waving away whole bruised childhoods, rotten fruits we used to feed the drooling ocean. Years ago, a friend and I hiked the Will Rogers Trail. We caught a dim rainbow at the cliff where he stood and hid his hands in his pockets. We sucked in the Pacific, the traffic, we met an elderly man called Timothy, a retired tour guide who slept in his car with a book of red letter scripture seat belted next to him. I hoped I would die on that mountain because I thought that close to God, it would be a hassle to send me to hell. In the memory of that day, I am alone. The friend is there also alone. He leans from the cliff and scans the city dots for his beautiful girl, his now wife. Wife. The word bends like a soft branch in my mouth. I've learned not to choke on it by lying achingly still. The waves reach and reach for me over the black ocean. The tender white hands of children petting a large, harmless corpse. Yeah, and that was the Neil Postman Award for Metaphor winner in 2013. And uh, you can just see that it's just a, a series of metaphors that just are so um, fresh and, and interesting. Um, how do you, let, let, maybe that's a good place to talk about craft a little bit. And how do you approach um, writing a poem? And how do you come up with, like your poem is, your poems throughout the book are really rich with metaphor um, and image too. Um, how do you uh, confront a poem and, and how do you generate metaphors like this? Do you, is there, do you have a, pro, uh, what's your process like? You know, the process has changed quite a lot since I wrote this book. Um, I think when I wrote it, I was reading a lot of poets who play with very surreal images like Jeffrey McDaniel. I was reading through all of his books and um they're very surreal, very unusual. And I was 
finding ways to hide, I guess. I was still not used to saying what I wanted to say. I'm not used to telling the story, which no one in my life knew until I was in college. And so it was still very new to me to share. I hadn't even shared it with, um, you know, some of my best friends. And so I think metaphor made me feel safe. I would find an image that I could just play with and really stretch, um, which made me feel like I had a little bit of protection as I was saying the thing that um, I wanted to say. But it was actually, um, I remember I took a class with Marie Howe, who hardly ever uses metaphor. And the first assignment she gave the class was to start making observations throughout your day. Um, but, but really refrain from using metaphor. So, you know, you can say the woman with red hair is walking down the street, but if you said the woman with wild hair, that's instantly a metaphor and we're constantly thinking in metaphor. And I realized that my brain just always is automatically creating these associations. It was much harder for me to just tell the story, to say the facts and to say, to find actual details. I think um, that to me is a little bit harder. And I know that's not exactly an answer you can give someone, um, like just change your brain. <laughs> but um, I think that's how it was before. Now though, I, it's hard for me to access metaphor. So I find myself going through a block of text and finding ways to insert metaphor, um, which I thought was like a cop out. I was like, this isn't a real poet. I'm you know, really faking it. I'm just shoving these metaphors in. Until um, I heard Ellen Bass talk recently and she, her metaphors are just through the roof. I think she's like one of the most brilliant writers of metaphor. and it turns out that she really struggles with writing metaphor. Oh, really? And she, yeah, I couldn't believe that. And she yeah, goes I would through, think that she, it just rolls off her tongue, yeah. Right? They're so good. And yeah. so it's just like no one could write her metaphors. But she apparently goes through and just writes the poem. And then line by line, she'll find places where she could insert a metaphor. And then she'll create a list of all the metaphors that it might, like that could fit there. And she'll you know, cross out all the ones that are, are cliche or cheesy or like, you know, very obvious or really bad until she gets to that one that's like the money <laughs> and she'll put that in there. And I was like, that made me feel better because then, because then I always read these books and I think like, man, like I can't think like that. I can't think like Ellen Bass and put in these metaphors in my poems, but to know that she does that work um, and is so intentional about it is actually very comforting. <laughs> That is, yeah. She was a guest on the Rattlecast uh, about a year ago, and she did not mention that secret. So now, yeah. <laughs> that's interesting right. to hear. It, but it's a great piece of advice. You know, I think there's a there's a sort of fantasy that poet, poems just happen spontaneously, and it's not work going into the the way they're crafted and shaped. Um, speaking of which, I noticed, and somebody already mentioned. Um, um, your your use of line length in in the white space around the pages and things like that is it seems very intentional and that struck me too the paragraph the stanza sizes, um, things like that the the visual way the poem looks on the page seem very um, you know, conscious and and carefully crafted as well is that something that you do too do you move pair you know move stanzas around and shape a poem like a sculptor after you've written it. I do. It's one of my favorite things to do. And as I was writing this book, I was very conscious of the fact that I was telling a story that I was remembering poorly. Um, I think 
as somebody with complex PTSD and having had a lot of childhood trauma, my brain erases a lot of memories. And I get so mad when my husband forgets to take pictures. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to remember this moment 10 years from now. But, um, in terms of this story, I remember a lot less. And so a lot of the white spaces I, I use to mimic that the moments in conversation where I would tell a story and then realize this entire chapter is blank and I don't know what to put here because I don't remember. Um, I just remember images or feelings or nothing at all. Um, and I think the movement also helped me to kind of mimic the, the way a story might be told, like the silence that comes after in divulging a secret and then having to pull back. Um, and I'm also, you know, obsessed with line breaks and, and like any other, any poet and the double meanings that you get from, cre- you know, mm-hmm. breaking the line. All, yeah, all what, that what do you look I don't think we've really talked, at least recently in an episode about, about line break itself. Um, what, what are you looking for in a good line break? Is there, is there sort of a rubric that you're, that you're, you're seeking? My favorite term that I didn't learn until even after this book was written, is contra rege, um, which, you know, if anybody listening isn't familiar with it, this is, we're going to get nerdy for a second, but it's when you break the line and before you read the next line, when the enjambment happens, you read that first line and it means something, but when you go down to the following line, it means something entirely else. I love that. I love creating those meanings because then you you have the ability to say so much more beyond just what the sentences are saying in a poem. Um, I also love what Laurent Bossolard calls a sal, a standalone line, where um, the enjambments create um, one, like the line itself is its own little phrase or its own sentence um, that it wouldn't otherwise be there without the enjambments. Um, so, so for example, I'm, I'm, I'm just because I'm looking at this poem, I haven't read it yet, mm-hmm. but it says, this was the man I used line break to cheat on the lover. And so you get, this was the man I used, but it's also, this was the man I used to cheat on the lover, which I, I guess is not that great of an example, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we get what you mean. And, and it's great. You know, we'll, um, Pay attention to those as we read some more poems. But what, what do you want to read next? I, I guess I'll read that one, which okay. is on page 22. Not a warning, not a challenge, not an instruction manual. I once slept with an older man who eclipsed every sliver of light in his apartment with blankets, duct tape, and ancient maps of New York. He flinched awake every hour on his mattress on the floor because his childhood stalked him with a knife at the other end of his eyelids. I orgasmed to knowing how to make him feel better. This was the man I used to cheat on the lover whose parents blew out birthday candles over a webcam. While they ate cake in the computer screen, I reached under my bell jar and pulled out my mom pulled out her chain-smoking boyfriend. I pulled out my alcoholic friends, all the ruddy strangers with fail engraved on their necks, and I sat, cross-legged, in a field of their wild limbs, which no one could ever climb past. And that was not a warning, not a challenge, not an instruction manual from Blood, Sparrows, and Sparrows. Another one of those poems is just so rich, 
with um, with metaphor and image. Um, do you want to do another one? Sure. Um, on that note of that poem, I'll read Undiagnosed, which is not in the book, but um, was in the most recent issue of Rattle in the tribute to neurodiversity. Undiagnosed. I've let a regular who tipped all right fuck me standing in someone else's bathroom. Macrame of silver grunions, manic on the sand. When my father kidnapped us, I didn't want to go home. I want it to be feral. I want it to test my luck. Plane rides fall short of that first plane ride bookended by police. Men fail to meet his standard of surprise. 3 a.m. wakings on school nights, sometimes to whip us for imagined sins, sometimes to dance. I need to see the music quaking in the furniture, chair legs jittering, cheap wood threatening to split. I took my first steps outside this country with a herd of church kids on my 19th birthday. I convinced them to drive to Tijuana. That's how I found the one I bribed to drag the virgin out of me. Before I tried to kill him, I saw ten nameless angels bungling about his dorm. His roommate, Emmanuel, was never there. Then the torment set in. I wouldn't leave my top bunk for weeks. It's possible they never loved me. They loved what I made possible. Low-hanging harvest moons swing in swerving windshields, the tint of flushed skin, biblically red. We never saw my father sleep when it was time to sleep. He wound around the house at night, a broken or horrifying toy that wouldn't shut off. Or he slept for weeks. I was the one who would risk rousing him to check. Thirty years I lived with the urge to run into traffic and did. Windows thrown open, floor standing rosewood speakers flooding our home with rock operas. We couldn't hear our voices. That's when we knew he was happy. That's when we knew we could breathe. And that was the poem from uh, the current issue of Rattle, Undiagnosed. And um, as you mentioned, it's in the uh, tribute to neurodiversity. And... Um, um, I guess you were in the note in the back, you mentioned that you were diagnosed with um, bipolar two disorder um, as well. And I was wondering, I'm reading the book. Um, another thing that, that I don't know if it'll come up and maybe poems we'll read later, but, but your father actually kidnapped you and your, your sister, I think. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and took you across um, state lines and, and things like that. And um, I was wondering, reading the book, is your father, does your father have bipolar disorder too? Cause it seems like bipolar, you know, it seems like textbook case too. Um, is that something that, that you suspect? I do suspect, um, he's never been officially diagnosed Mm -hmm. with any kind of mental health, um, disorder, but now having talked to a few mental health professionals, um, I'm pretty sure he has bipolar one disorder, Mm -hmm. probably a few other personality disorders, um, either narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder. I'm sure there is a cocktail of them there. Yeah. And as a, as a follow up, I mean, what I was really wondering is if, if, um, you know, that experience and and having that, that sense that he's probably has bipolar disorder too, does that change the way you feel about the way 
he behaved throughout your childhood? It doesn't. It doesn't. I think it makes it grieves me more. It makes me sad to know he was sick, that a lot of the choices that he made um, were choices that he made when he was really unwell because um, because of his bipolar disorder. There were times when he was a great dad and he was, um, you know, through the roof affectionate. But there were also times when, you know, he was the worst dad. Um and I think now I see that all of that happened when he was younger than I am now. He was a kid. Um, he was 22 when he had me and um, something like 35 maybe with the last time he was arrested and the last time I saw him until I was an adult. And it, it makes me very sad. But something that my therapist has helped me to understand is but he had a lot of chances to get help, mm-hmm. especially in prison. Um, which he was in in and out of several times. We had court-mandated therapists um, that we didn't see often, but they were offered to us. Um, you know, he had co- he had confidants and colleagues who were pastors who were trained in counseling people. And even though all of these resources were available to him, he never admitted that he was unwell or that he needed any kind of help. He never thought that he did. Um, was doing anything wrong. And part of that was probably a symptom of one of these personality disorders. But I think that to me now as a parent um, with a bipolar two disorder is just upsetting because I know now if I if I'm not taking my medication or if I'm, you know, not going to see my therapist or my psychiatrist, I know that I am doing a disservice to my child and to my husband. Um, and I recognize that I'm very lucky to have these resources and to be able to do that at all. But I know I'm a better parent and a better partner when I'm taking care of myself. And um, that's something my dad didn't do. Mm-hmm. And he made the choice not to do that. And so I think that takes that grief and then turns it into anger. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I um I worked in a group home um, as a counselor for mentally ill adults, um, mostly oh, wow. adults with schizophrenia, but um, many people with bipolar disorder too. And that is just always the challenge of getting people to recognize that they're better off, especially with bipolar disorder, when the um, the manic episodes that they would have are just such a positive experience, mm. and, and 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 it's so easy to slip into that thinking like everything is great and who needs medication and and um and how does um how does your um, mental health affect your, your writing of poetry? Because um, one of the people that, that I worked with at the group home um, was actually a, a novelist. And mm. he would, would intentionally go off his medication to write because he felt like he couldn't otherwise. Um, and that just seems like a very frightening thing for any artist who has um, bipolar disorder. Mm. Um, is, is that something that, is there a way that it affects your writing or do you write um, or does it not? Um, when I wrote the book, the poems in this book, I was yet undiagnosed, um, but very obviously going through both manic and depressive episodes. And I was writing poems during both of those episodes, but I think it's harder for me to write when I'm manic, um, or hypomanic because a lot of it just sounds amazing to me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's not. And, um, for, you know, after I got married was when I started to have um, severe depression. And then I had a miscarriage that triggered a lot of other mental health um, episodes 
which led to my diagnosis. And during that entire time, and while experimenting with medication, all of that, for I, maybe four or five years, I wasn't writing at all. I just couldn't write. I was um, both hypomanic and depressed. Um, and in both of those seasons, I couldn't write. It wasn't until I stabilized on medication that I was finally able to come out and write newer poems, um, which I've been doing for the last two years. And so, you know, I, that's a fear that I always had had, you know, people always say, Oh, but you're never going to be able to write poems again because your bipolar is probably the thing that's like making you very creative. But I am finding out now that that's not true. Mm-hmm. at least for me, but I, I suspect that's not true for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is the case. Um, most often, um, uh, where was it? Julian Matthews asks, um, sort of on the, in the same vein here, how was the reaction from your family members when you published your poetry? And is it necessary to get permission from them when you identify them in poems? How do you, how do you approach that? So I actually, um, cut ties with my father the year before my book came out. Mm-hmm. When he, and I mean, part of it is that I changed my name. My first name is the same, but my last name is not Lee. Um, Lee, I got from my dad's mother's maiden name, and then I anglicized it. Um, But I guess with the internet, it's not hard to figure out that these are my poems, and I didn't do a very good job of disguising myself. And so my dad found my poems on the internet and uh, was very angry. And then I stopped writing for a period after I realized that I was upsetting him. But um, at at my first Kundiman retreat, and Kundiman is an organization for Asian American poets, and um, I had I was you know in my mid twenties, I had a manuscript, but had stopped sending it out because of my dad. And I went to my first Kundiman retreat and I remember Kimiko Han was there and she told this room full of 20, 30 something year old Asian American poets who were like crying after we had divulged our personal stories. She said, I give you permission to tell, tell these stories. She said a lot of times, especially in, in Asian families, but in families where trauma was kept a secret, um, you feel a lot of guilt and a lot of pain in telling these stories. And, um, but they need to be told. And to hear like an Asian American elder say, I give you permission, I think was so healing and eye-opening for me. And then I remember Oliver De, De La Paz um, took me aside and said, why are you letting your father be your editor? He's not your editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot about that Anne Lamott quote where she said, um, if people wanted me to write about them differently, they should have behaved better. You know, she says it more eloquently. But I... I do think that there is a responsibility in uh, memoir and in nonfiction to, um, and I've written a few nonfiction essays where I have asked permission of people that I name or that I'm um, that I'm uncomfortable, you know, writing about. But in poetry, so much of it is imagined. Also, this is an imagined retelling of a story that's not just my story, but the story of so many people who have experienced this kind of trauma. And so um, I don't believe that the same kind of ethical requirement is there to ask permission. Um, But obviously that's a very personal decision. I know some other poets who disagree. Um, And but I do think hard conversations need to be had. Uh, I was really worried about my mother because so much of this is her story. And she was still not yet comfortable telling people about 
what she had endured and the things that her husband had done. Um, but the year leading up to this book, she suddenly became like spokeswoman for surviving domestic violence and was doing talks with audiences of like a bunch of like hundreds of Korean church members and, you know, giving her story and, and, and that, and then she started doing work in prisons, going there every Saturday to work with men who had abused, you know, their wives or uh, other people and to tell her story. And so all of that in her own life changed leading up to my book. And, um, so I just think of that as like divine intervention that I didn't have to have a difficult conversation with my mother because she was like, at that point, like my daughter wrote this about my story too. And like was mm -hmm. totally on board. So I, I do think that I just lucked out in that way. Do you think maybe that, that writing the book helped your mother in that way? Like is, is, did she know the book was coming and was she reading it ahead of time? And could that have been what sort of made her confront those things that she hadn't wanted to? You know, I've never had a real conversation about my book with my mother because um, I have avoidant tendencies also, and so does my mom. Um, and she hadn't heard any of these poems. She said she read it, but I did. I she says a lot of things, and I wasn't sure if she had. But then she came to one reading um, not long after the book was published and re heard me read for thirty minutes from this book, and. It didn't face her at all. She didn't say anything, but I think we just sort of have an understanding. She's like, you know, you've experienced these things. You're a lot, you can write about them. And that's just, I'm glad you're doing something and <laughs> not on drugs. So, Yeah, well, that's great. Great to hear. Um, uh, do you want to read? We have maybe 10 minutes left. Maybe so maybe like two room for two or three poems. Maybe one more question from the audience or something. Um, do you want to go? What do you want to go to next? Sure. Um, well, if there's a question that you think is interesting, or I can, I'm happy to read. Yeah, we, we have we have a good ten, you know, ten plus minutes. So um, why don't you read a poem, then we'll do a question, then another poem, and that that'll be how we end it out. Perfect. Okay. So I will read um, "Every Hair on Your Head," which is on page forty-six, and this was written um, the day that Mark Linkus, the musician behind the band Sparkle Horse, took his own life. And it begins with a quote from one of his songs. And the quote goes, Every hair on your head is counted. You are worth hundreds of sparrows. Every hair on your head. The day you pushed a bullet through your heart. The length of a day on earth shortened by a millionth of a second. That same day, a NASA satellite captured an image of a dust storm. Chile withstood its 130th aftershock in a week. And I glimpsed a bird twitching on the floor of a Brooklyn metro station. Its eyeballs bulged as, as if to literally absorb the ocular world. And I shuddered away. For hours, I saw that flinching creature in my mind. I saw hundreds of similar birds shimmering into the station to lie next to it, a quilt of silvery bodies tiled wing to wing. On good days, I want to be saved. Most days, I want every savior in our hell so they'll know torment in the bloodstream, death's whistling, ceaseless, blurring the cleanest heartbeats. My first time, I was 13. I tested five pills. 
My stomach barely ached. I ate ramen, lived, solved math problems. But for days before that, I envisioned my body smeared, inside out, a swarthy, dazzling canvas. What I wouldn't give to graze that silence. Did you do it standing up or crouching? Which was the bigger surprise? The gun punching or the angel catching you? It's another powerful poem. Every hair on your head from Blood Sparrows and Sparrows. Um, let's maybe do like a, a lightning round of questions. We have a few. Um, sure. And let me try to find this really, really short one. Um, um, Somebody on our, on our, I can't find it. Somewhere, somebody was asking about um, metaphor, because we were talking about metaphor before, and the di difference between simile and metaphor. Um, I think it was Paulette Warren, but I can't see it now. Um, but, um, um, you, know, m you know, simile is using like, and metaphor doesn't. Um, or, I mean, it's kind of an oversimplification. <laughs> but, um, but do you have a preference for one or the other? Um, I think Paulette mentioned something about, like, not liking the word like being put in there mm. is it sort of not trusting the reader to see your metaphor um mm. do you think about simile versus metaphor at all since you're such a rich metaphor writer oh um i do i do prefer metaphor i think the metaphor forces the reader to participate more because it makes the brain jump from the thing being said to the image that it's being connected to and when the reader's brain makes that jump and and they're doing that work of either agreeing with the metaphor or disagreeing with the metaphor, it, it implicates them in the poem. It makes them emotionally invested because now they're doing work as they're reading your poem. And um, I forget who it is that, that I remember reading something like that. I totally stole this from somebody else, but I think about that a lot. Yeah, that was, I found it, it was Mark J. Anderson who asked that question. And he says, I detest simile <laughs> with, a, <laughs> with a smiley face. So, um, so it sounds uh, like you're along the same page as him. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Vicky Miko over on YouTube asked if you could talk a little bit about teaching art, um, because that's something we haven't mentioned at all, but you teach art. Um, and, and what do you do? Uh, what do you do teaching art? And, um, and what, how does that relate to writing poetry? So I don't teach art. Oh, but <laughs> well, good because I, I was thinking like, oh, I missed that completely. Okay, never mind then. <laughs> no, I, I say that I'm a teaching artist. I think that's sort of the going term for people who teach not in academia. And so I, I when I teach, I teach poetry. Oh, okay. So so where do you teach out, outside of academia? Where? Um... Oh, so these are just um, workshops here and there. So mm -hmm. most recently, I taught at the Brooklyn Public Library. We did a virtual workshop, um, and I also. I think you mentioned that sometimes I do workshops with ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Education Defense and Education Fund. Um, they have a youth group for undocumented Asian American youth in the East Coast area. And so I've done um, a series of workshops with them. I, I did several years ago, which turned into a performance piece and a fundraiser. Um, so I've taught in a prison in the past in Valhalla, New York. So I love teaching uh, the community um, I don't have a ton of academic experience. I, I was a, I'm a PhD dropout. And so I did teach comp when I was a PhD student in literature. Um, but that's not really for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, 
um, one thing I didn't ask is, is just how you got into poetry in the first place. I always like to know that, but do you remember like the first poem you loved? Uh, somebody up above asked about your influences. Um, and it, it's hard, hard to go back all the way up to the comments. Oh, here it is. This was Paulette Warren. That's what I was trying to think of. So Paulette asked if you were influenced by Lucille Clifton's The Terrible, Terrible Stories or perhaps Toni Morrison. Um, and I was just wondering too about your influences and, and how did you fall in love with poetry? Yes, I, uh, Lucille Clifton, Toni Morrison, um, both writers I love. Lucille Clifton, I didn't find or wasn't taught until um, much later in my later 20s. I think my earliest influences um, were June Jordan um, and Anne Sexton. So I remember very distinctly in middle school, we had a project where we had to choose the name of a poet from a list of American poets and then do a biography about them and recite a poem. And I chose Anne Sexton, um, partly because her name had the word sex in it. I was 12. And I found, and this was like right when the internet had just, just come into our home. You know, we had the dial-up modems and all of that. And I remember looking up all her poems on the very limited internet that existed. And I memorized one that was po uh, published posthumously called red roses and it was a very sing-songy childlike poem about a mom who was throwing around her three-year-old and creating these red roses on his body which were the bruises and it was a very thinly veiled poem about child abuse and at that poem at that moment in my life we were still not allowed to talk about our story i had no friends who knew anything about what was happening at home and i remember reciting that poem in front of the class and thinking like this is the way that i'll get to share my story um and just like being feeling just so much power in that moment and um just feeling grateful for that experience and that that really stayed with me and so after that i wrote a lot of bad poems about my experiences and i see now that that was a really healthy coping strategy and so i came to poetry as a coping strategy i think that's why i love teaching in communities more than in academia because i i love it when people come to poetry as a way of healing as a way of um processing their own experiences instead of you know as like an academic um like a literary thing to, to show off about. Like, I just, I just don't have patience for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a great story and a great example of what we were talking about earlier with, of the, the purpose of poetry. Like imagine your poems now are being read by someone else who um, needs them in that way that you needed that Anne Sexton poem, you know? I hope so. Yeah. Um, do you want to finish out with one last poem? Sure. I'll read, we called it the year of birthing, which is on page 66. And so um, the context for this is every year since 2003, I've given my year a word instead of coming up with New Year's resolutions. So it'll be like the year of power, the year of love, the year of joy. And um, that particular year, I called it the year of birthing. And then my best friend got pregnant and she was like, it's your word. It's your fucking word. That's why I got pregnant. And I was like, no, that's not why you got pregnant. Um, so we called it the year of birthing. God handed me a trash bag bloated with feathers. Turn this into a bird, he said. He threw me a bowl of nails and make with this a new father. God gave some people whole birds, ready-made fathers with no loose bolts. The rest of us received crude nests, used mothers. 
I banged the nails into two planks of wood and marched around a church screaming, Father, Father, until friends appeared, hammering the scraps they were given to make something of themselves. When beaten hard enough, some people scamper into corners sorted with similar beaten people. Others of us, the stubborn, unbreakable humans, weld our wounds to form tools. Then we spend our days mending bent humans or wiping the humans mired by all the wrong fingerprints. The morning the first baby was born in our circle of friends, we hovered over this child who, unlike us, was born whole. You were given a good mother, we said, a good father. Each one of us prayed. We scrubbed our soiled hands before we held his swaddled body. Now, as we called it, the year of birthing from Blood, Sparrow, and Sparrows, uh, Eugenia Lee's book from four-way books eugenia thanks so much for being a guest today um just a great poet and a great person too i mean the the amount of openness and honesty that you have with these difficult topics is just really inspiring and um and really important i think for for a lot of people to hear so thank you for for doing all that you do thank you so much tim i really appreciate you inviting me and for um championing these poems so i thank you yeah it's my pleasure and we'll have to have you on again with your next book which um we should mention it's it's forthcoming um in two years though i think um uh, can you say a little, just a little bit about that before you go um yes it's in it's coming in 2023 um it's called bianca and a lot of it revisits some of these narratives but um is also wrestling with these diagnoses, the PTSD, the bipolar two disorder, and um, what that looks like in, in motherhood as well. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing, for sharing that and everything today, Eugenia. It's been really been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Tim. I love chatting with you. So thank you so much. Great. Thanks. Have a good night. You too. Bye. So that was Eugenia Lee with her uh, book from Four Way Books. Um, put on screen one more time. Uh, this is it right here. Blood, Sparrows, and Sparrows. Uh, you can find the book itself at um, Forway Books website. And you can find Eugenia Lee at uh, eugeniaLee.com, just like it's spelled here. E-U-G-E-N-I-A-L-E-I-G-H. EugeniaLee.com. I uh, hope everybody picks up this book, a really, really wonderful writing uh, throughout this book and, and all of Eugenia's work. Uh, now it's going to be time for the open lines, and as always, I'm going to take a little bit of a break to stretch and get things organized, but before I do, let me put up the phone numbers and everything on the screen. Uh, it is right here. Uh, the phone number is 818-850-7727. If you would like to uh, join in, give a call there, and I'll let it ring a few times and hang up. That's how you'll get on the call list. I'll call you back sometime in the next hour. If you would like to join by Skype over video too, you can... Uh, send me a chat message to Rattle Poetry, all one word, over Skype, and uh, just say hi. I'll wave back, or, or if you're a veteran, I won't even say anything. I'll just call you up, but I'll call you up in the next hour. Likewise, I'm, I'll be calling from the future, so there's a 30-second or so delay on the YouTube stream, so make sure when I call you, you turn off the stream and only listen through the phone or through Skype, because otherwise it gets confusing. There's like a 30-second delay, and it, it ends up being hard to do. Um, now, there is a prompt every week. You don't have to do the prompt, uh, but the prompt this week... Uh, was let me put it on screen for everybody who has a prop poem the prop poem is here and it is write a poem that oh wait no that's next week's prompt 
Oops, this week's prompt was two. So now you have a preview of next week's prompt. This week's prompt... Yeah, I got him backwards. This week's prompt was write a poem that begins with the following sentence, pull over at the next stop. That's uh, this week's prompt coming up. So if you wrote a poem about this, pull over at the next stop was the prompt for this week. If you have a poem that uh, fits for that, join the open lines now. And I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to get the uh, poems organized, and um, I'll see you just back in 30 seconds or so. Okay. Oh, wait, and before I do, I forgot to say, uh, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be uh, Janae Bauer. Um, Janae had a poem in Rattle number 15 way back in the day, uh, but she has a new book, The Ekphrastic Writer. And as everybody knows uh, who follows Rattle, we have the Ekphrastic Challenge once a month where we do an Ekphrastic poem. We've been doing that for about five years, maybe even maybe even six and a half years, actually, now that I think about it. Um, so this is a, uh, a book about ekphrastic poetry itself, the ekphrastic writer creating art-influenced poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. And so she's going to talk about using art to inspire your writing. And uh, I thought it would be a really good book to talk about. We, don't, we haven't had too many books where, um, or guests where we have been talking sort of about nonfiction style type books and, or prompt type books. And uh, most of the guests we have have uh, just books of poems. And so it's going to be interesting to talk about the ekphrastic, um, the ekphrastic writer and ekphrastic poetry as a kind of genre. So that'll be next week on Rattlecast number 90. But I'm going to take a little break. I'll be back in 30 seconds. So sit tight and refresh your drinks. I'll be right back. And I'm back. Thanks so much for your patience as I get everybody settled in. We have a whole bunch of people lined up already. Um, I think uh, we have the unknown person who is usually, I believe that's Carlton Johnson, um, Paulette Warren, Jared Lacey, uh, Brenda Kamarinsky, Sally Dunn, Brent Stoffer, Gordon Coppola, Navdita Karthik, Vicky Miko. Um, did I skip anybody? I think that that's, that's who we have right now. Um, then we have a whole bunch of people who've emailed me. One thing, um, also I should say is that if anybody like can't make it and just wants to email me a poem, um, and we have time, I can, I can read some extra poems to myself all the time. So you don't necessarily have to, although I'm going to go to the people who are here first. So, uh, that's how we always do. We're always going to do go to, um, first time callers first too, as well. Um, and once again, the, there's a prompt every week, but the poem that you submit or share here on the, on the Rattlecast open lines doesn't have to be a prompt poem. It can be anything you want to share. It can be a poet response submission from this weekend. It can be a poem you recently published and are proud of. It can be something you published a long time ago. It can be something just to promote your book. Last week, we had an interesting poem, um, about the, a book about the Titanic, which was really interesting talking to, um, I can't remember the name of that poet off the top of my head, but really interesting talking to there. So if you have a book and you want to just plug a book and share a poem, feel free to do that too. Now, as I mentioned, the prompt for this week was to write a poem that begins with the following sentence, pull over at your next stop right here. And now my poem on the prompt, it made me think of um, uh, the last sort of trip, attempt at sort of connection with my father when I was like 17 or so we drove to cooperstown the baseball hall of fame and so here's a little poem about a little scene from that little trip and here it is this is a oops this is it right here somewhere outside the hall of fame pull over at the next stop you say and i do 
but the exit is only an overpass, an off-ramp sloping up through an hour of oak and maple in each direction, hills of fields and a few farms, not a sign of the nearest town. So I park on the shoulder and you shuffle past the reach of the headlights to piss in a roadside bush. The shadow of you is real as your real figure fading in the evening light. And though we never said it, both of us knew that the still green leaves left on those trees would be spectacular in the fall, a blaze of gold and cardinal, but we wouldn't be there to see it. So that was my poem, Somewhere Outside the Hall of Fame. And here's Megan's poem, Pull Over at the Next Stop. It doesn't matter what or where or why, just do it. Pull over at the next stop. Maybe it's the world's biggest ball of yarn, or the overpriced buffalo jerky shop. Maybe it's deer grazing in a field, the orangest flowers you've ever seen. One of those ginormous gas, station bath- with gas stations with bathrooms they promise are so clean. You could eat a Twinkie right off the floors. Maybe it's an abandoned building where sorrow mingles with the floating dust. Maybe it's someone standing there, selling strawberries or fresh flowers that smell like summer, and you can see the person's face and wonder who they are. Maybe it's a musty small-town library, where the librarian's fingernails dance across her desk like tap shoes on a stage. Maybe it's the oldest, saddest junkyard dog, a cat with a free kitten sign on its cage. Whatever it is, pull over at the next stop. Tell yourself that if anything matters, it's this. Gawk. Take pictures. Act like it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Because it is. Another great poem from Megan. And the thing with Megan, you know, she used to not like any kind of formal elements in poetry. She used to be a, a much more free verse loving poet. And now it seems like she's really getting into the, uh, into the form. Um, but another great poem from Megan, who's the one who comes up with these. She's, of course, the assistant editor at Rattle here and my wife. And uh, she's the one who comes up with the prompts, and then we both try to try to top each other every week. It's a fun challenge. Um, now let's go to uh, first time. Let's go to a caller, and first we will call up. Let's call up Brent. Usually we call Brent at the end of the show. Let's call up Brent Stoffer early. See what Brent's got. Here's Brent. Okay, so it, it's still working. I was getting a little worried. Hey Brent, how's this? It's great. Yeah, we have you. So, All right. You know, a couple of people awesome. weren't answering or weren't connecting, so okay. uh, I was a little nervous <laughs> that, it, that it was going to be one of those nights. But we got you on the line. Yeah. So uh, right on. So what do you have for us today? Is it a prompt? Okay. Yeah, I do have a prompt poem. Um, it took me a little while to to uh, to connect with it, but um, then once I did, it it came out. Uh, it came out pretty quickly. Um, I've been trying to write a poem a day since it's uh, uh, Poetry Month. Oh yeah, know? and and um, man, it's hard. Wow, but um, but the the practice of trying to write a complete poem every day, uh, I think, really has has already uh, like this one came out in about half an hour, which for me is lightning fast. Have you ever done that before? Like I, I've never tried to write a poem a yeah, day. Yeah. No, uh, uh-uh. I have not. So I'm trying to find this poem, and uh, I can't. I'm not seeing it. It's it's called prompt poem. Prompt poem. I never got it. I don't think. Prompt poem. 
Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> yeah. It is that kind of night. It really is. Everything is uh, going off. But you could just read it. We'll just listen. I, I know I sent it to you. Huh. Well, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I'll just read it then. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, sh- yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, it's too bad because it looks so good on the page. Anyway. <laughs> well, let, me, let me see. Maybe you... Maybe you uh... No, not here either. Yeah, I just don't have it. That's just nuts. But, uh, okay. Uh, Well, there are other things going on today that we can celebrate, so this is okay. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Um, All right, so pull over at the next stop. I mean, it's the name of it actually is After the Funeral. Pull over at the next stop, please. The blurry speed of these trees buzzing by has me dizzy and breathless. This long, lolling tongue of freeway stretches out from some unseen, slack-jawed mouth. Christ, this American beast is big and tall. All hail the ancient, gas-thirsty Cadillac. No, really. Let's take a break. It's not like we're talking, anyway. It's not like there's anything to say. Maybe if we pull over and wander just a little into the woods, we'll find a clearing and a horse standing there. He might lift his head to get a better look at us. Maybe we'll see something swimming in his dark giant eye, something in all those centuries to remind us of why we'd want to be alive. Oh, excellent. I love that, Brent. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thanks very much. And great show, by the way. Really a lot of range, like like getting really into uh, deep personal emotional stuff and also into like the finer tunings of craft you know so uh i really thoroughly enjoyed the show tonight yeah she's a really cool person i really like talking to her too and and the the pre-show too it was really nice so yeah thanks brent awesome all right thanks sam yep take care see you you next week hopefully oh yeah all right bye it was brent stauffer and uh my brain doesn't doesn't record uh the title but uh we can we can tell you again later um, let me see. Let's call up next. Let's go to Joy Stahl. And Joy's got a prompt poem again, too. Hello. Good evening, Joy. How are you doing tonight? All right. Um, and so what do you want to share with us? I got a prompt poem, but do you want to introduce it in any way? Yes. Uh, I actually put a footnote in here because... It includes an in-joke between my offspring and I. Uh, it originated from a video arcade game, and it has a special meaning um, for for the in my family, uh, referring to a particular vehicle. Uh, so, the, explain the the imagery a little bit there. Uh, also, I wrote this immediately after you gave the prompt. Oh, I yeah. was probably finished with it within 15 or 20 minutes and uh, ended up rearranging the stanzas uh, the next day. But other than that, it was like, it was just instant inspiration. So. <laughs> See, that's what I want to do. I should start doing that with myself. Cause after the show, I always feel like the surge of language flowing through me or whatever. And, um, you know, after reading is the best time to write. But then I have to do the the processing of the podcast and all that, so I never end up right. doing it. I always do it the half an hour before the show, but it'd be nice <laughs> to do it right after. I think that's the ideal time. So uh, let's hear it whenever you're ready. All right. 
Reasons to pull over. Pull over at the next stop. Chinese fire drill. Pull over at the next stop. White wizard needs food badly. Pull over at the next stop. The road's too winding. Motion sickness. Pull over at the next stop. You missed driver's ed class. Pull over at the next stop. You're growing up much too quickly. Oh, very touching at the end. Thanks for sharing that, Joy. Thank you. Yeah, have a good night. You too. Bye. It was Joey Stahl with reasons to pull over. Um, yeah, let's call up uh, yeah, Gordon's back. Let's call up Gordon Kipola. Hey, Gordon, we got you now. <laughs> so how you doing tonight? Can you hear me? Good. Okay. Good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good. So, so what do you have for us? I have a, uh, since you, you got on me last week for, uh, for not being true to my formal roots, uh-huh. I went hard, hard, old school formal on this. And uh, I had just a tremendous amount of fun discovering cool and meaningful rhymes to do. So, uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is called The Fox and the Fox. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Pull over at the next stop, Aesop, and we'll fable up a strategy for staying clear of jail. You and me, kid, we'll beat this rap. Drop any cop. Believe it. You heard what I told mom. My brother rocks his books, so who cares about the censors? Oligarch squares have their fortress. Aesop writes the bomb. If a mouse stops fearing a lion, because she chewed a captured cat loose from great white hunter's snare, we can choose which enemies are real. Most are spun by lying propaganda spiders, dueling one true gods, melanin hues, the flesh between our legs, made up news that tells us kill the damn outsiders. Those sirens drawing near, they're for you. I'm sorry, kid, I had to Judas. Mom said to push you under the bus. Spewing truth is not what foxes do. Oh, nice poem. I love those rhymes, too. Thanks, Gordon. My pleasure, man. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, very good one. Have a good night. You too, Jim. Thanks. Bye. It was Gordon Capola with The Fox and the Fox. Um, let's see. Let's call Jared Lacey. He hasn't been on in a while. Let's see what Jared has for us. This is Jared. Hey, Jared, it's Tim with Rattle. You're live on the air. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How about yourself, Tim? I'm doing great. And what do you have for us? Okay, I wanted to, uh, to recite a poem that I uh, got recently published uh, last month. Great. And where was it published? It was published in the Ink Drinkers magazine, uh, It's which is based in... Um, in, in North Rule part of England, which is kind of strange because this is the this makes the second poem uh, that I got published this year. Got one published in January in uh, in England and the UK as well. Uh, it, let's say again, it was the Ink Drinkers magazine. It's relatively new, and it was founded by uh, a, a person by the name of Charlie Mills, and they publish about uh, four issues a year on the Soltis and Equinox dates. 
And the reason why it was formed is when the uh, editor found out that the term ink drinker is the French version of bookworm and thought that would be a good uh, name for a literary magazine. That's very cool. I'm glad you knew the answer to that. I was kind of wondering myself, but I figured you wouldn't know, so I didn't ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. ink drinkers. Yeah. Theme-based magazine. I thought, and, this, and I'm in the second issue uh, entitled Home. And uh, I'm going to be reading uh, the Tenses Dining Room Montage, uh, which I wrote last year. Uh, just, you know, just um, one evening I just uh, was in my mom's dining room and I was just looking around and uh, the poem just came to mind. I just sat down and just started writing. Very cool. I have it up. Whenever you're ready, go ahead. All right. All right. Uh, the Tenses Dining Room Montage. One. Gold from a tilful bulb melted and pooled like a stream frozen warmly and matted as light lent an ambiance. The dimmest light saddled as a moderately pultritudinous figure and feminine, with a smooth, babyish-built vase too powdered blue at the center of the curvy-edged table circled is an empress, and her jet-stream hair mocks pompous grass so stubborn and sprayed a faded shade of her body. Two. The mantle is a faux fireplace edge pretending to be a home for a lineup of mostly dust collectors, all nearly glass. The wall that catches a plethoric of false gold mesh-up lit is their background east. At the lower right gives in to the shadow, leading to three two-feet speakers crowned and weaved baskets full of plastic flowers realistically tasked. Those perpetual well-behaved children are just are their just forms of group gods overseeing their loving portion. Three. Between two worn and bent by heat portraits of who is supposedly Jesus, neither one of them has kinky hair, is an indoor statue attachment whose protrusion is a long continual launch as a standing blister six feet embalmy. What looks like what should have been the first in-home heater is a strong and proudly unchanging family member that is always the shortest. The long-term flames from this stump piece of metal creates a crystal life from whatever is in their proximity reflected, particularly Grandma's series of immaculate knobby glasses in her passed-on curio cabinet but the son of men behind the confines of light waving is an irony played by direction, refuses them the best illumining decorum to say that it is imminent, that the two faces far from known descriptions isn't a trust worth viewing. And that was the tenses dining room montage and thank you tim so much for allowing me to recite this yeah very excellent poem i love the sounds and the language throughout thanks for sharing that thank you tim you have a good night yep you too bye-bye Bye. that was jared lacy with uh the tenses dining room montage and you can find uh ink drinkers poetry it's always fun finding new uh, literary magazines i had never heard of this one it's ink drinkers poetry.com and uh as uh, yeah, as Jared Lacey said, it was born when the editor found out the term ink drinker is the French version of bookworm, bookworm, and thought, hey, that could be a good name for a lit mag. 
So I think we are all ink drinkers here. So bottoms up. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Jared. That's really cool. Uh, let's call up next. <clears throat> you know, I think next I will read. Um, I read Carlton Johnson's poem, and this is on the number fifty-one by Carlton Johnson, and another prop poem for this uh, from this week. Here it is on the fifty-one by Carlton Johnson. Pull over at the next stop. I hear words pulse through my inner ear. I stir, fumble for a conscious thought. Upon waking, upon awakening, I am in the same spot between two old gray-haired men on the number 51 bus heading downtown again. I bar- burrow into my blue coat of da- down. I wish I was still dreaming of being a circus clown. I wake to hear Hilda, a senior citizen regular, demanding Mort the driver to stop at the next cross street, landing her close to the Dunkin' Donuts on York Road where I am told she likes she likes to her homeless son, Vic, especially on nights this cold. Pull over at the next stoplight! A shh came from a blue-eyed youngster, zipped up tight. Hilda's glare softened at the gale's glance. Hilda reminded herself to love at every chance. The next stop is Northern Parkway, Mord announces loudly. The next stop is Northern Parkway, as the skies turn cloudy. The number 51 bus whirred to a stop as the doors whooshed open. Hilda took a step toward the door. Pause. Cold air interloped. Hilda reached into her small clutch purse, pulled out five dollars. She mouthed thank you while pulling tight her faux fox collar. Excellent uh, rhyming couplets there. Carlton Johnson on, on the number 51. Thanks for sharing that, Carlton. Um, let's see. Next up, we shall call... Let's go down to Nivedita. She's still here. Hopefully, she's still here before she starts her work day. Hello? Hey, Nivedita. Good morning to you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. Uh, what do you have for us? I think it's a prompt poem. Pull over. I see. First mm-hmm. line. Yep. Is there anything you yes, want to say about it? it's a prompt poem, as always. Um, so, I basically took the metaphor of life as the last stop on the line so that's that's basically what it's about oh very good yeah okay and go this ahead. is something i figure that my wednesday poems are usually quite serious compared to my sunday one so it's like let's let's just give it a good mix of both <laughs> sounds good well thanks for sharing this go ahead whenever you're ready okay great thank you the last stop pull over at the next stop for that's where i get off my journey ends here and my traveling days are done i leave you there and head out on my own i'll have my own special adventure far beyond anything you ever dreamed, imagined, hoped, realized existed. I'll be waiting at the begin ending, you know where that is, for you to join me once your traveling days are done so that we can enjoy our next adventure together. But all I ask is this, don't stop traveling on this road. Don't turn back and look for me. Don't wait for me to join you again, for I'll be long gone. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Vaughn. That was The Last Stop by Nivedita Dikarthik. Thanks so much, Nivedita. Hope you have a great uh, great day at work today. Thank you, Tim. Have a lovely evening. Yep. Good night. Bye-bye. Yeah, Nivedita Dikarthik with The Last Stop. Uh, next, let's try. Let's go to um, Paulette Warren and see what Paulette has. Another pullover at the next stop poem. Revisiting Buffalo Alice. Hey, Paulette, you're live on the air. Can you hear me? 
I sure can, Tim. Can you hear me? I can. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing wonderful. Um, and do you, good show, good yeah, show. Yeah, thank yeah, Eugenia. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. She, um, the Neil Postman Award winners are just so good, and uh, it's really cool to uh, hear more of their work. Um, what do you want? To, what is there anything you want to say about this? We're visiting Buffalo Alice before you read it. Um, it's kind of funny. I was doing an exercise uh, on road trips, and um, and then your prompt came up. So, oh, perfect. So, sort of serendipity serendipity i guess and um so i'm looking at a past road trip and then one that was to be taken is to be taken actually um but with everything and we're going to be going through the twin cities so um with the chauvin trial and in all of the preparations that were being made for for uh, possible riots um it it was kind of a dangerous spot of driving through my my home base of the twin cities Mm -hmm. and uh and so uh kind of these two thoughts came together and um what is really funny is that your prompt for next week says to write a poem that ends and starts with the same line and guess what this poem does this one does oh wow look at that so i was i was ahead on that too (laughs) you were it must be prescient god i don't know what's going on anyway yeah. Okay, so I'll just read it. Okay, go ahead. It's, um, it's Revisiting Buffalo Alice. Pull over at the next stop, I asked my husband. Each fall for decades, we passed the highway sign that read Buffalo Alice next right. On our way from Minnesota to Saskatchewan, the sanctified carnage of its annual goose hunt, multitudes of waterfowl, millions of birds. We were geared up with shotguns and ammo, the season so securely held that it was breath between our bones. Who was she, Buffalo Alice? Each drive-by sparked new legend, an Annie Oakley kind of girl, a native Skinner moon-dancing the good kill. We wove stories to the totemic rhythm of the road, the rose-colored quilt of unbroken sod, feverish with fall's fiery luster. Until we made the stop, at the top of the turnoff, Two signs, Buffalo to the right, Alice to the left. Separate, as so many things these troubled times, three nations under one flag, first red and blue. Every day we question what we know and what we don't, who we trust and who we can't. Each day we watch as nature tears her heart out, seismic response no less than the heartbreak at yet another needless traffic stop guns drawn, ammo ready, hair trigger fingers twitching. Tomorrow, we drive 35W south toward Iowa, the road well known. It passes through the Twin Cities, boarded in wait for further carnage, desecration decreed by both sides, no way to quell the feverish despair, the siren song of apocalypse. I know a road sign on the other side, halfway to the border, The sign reads as a prayer, hope, next right. I will say to my husband, pull over at the next stop, and he will. Oh, that was a wonderful poem. Uh, Paulette Pashabin revisiting Buffalo Alice. I love the way that the, the, that's a great example of the prompt that's going to be coming up, of the the way that the, you know, the last line changes, even though it's repeated. Um, That's just great. Thanks so much for sharing that. I love a good road trip poem. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, and, and thanks, everyone, for a great night. I'm really enjoying your poetry. Yeah, thanks. Good night, Paulette. Good night. It is Paulette Pashabin, 
Um, and uh, let's see, who should we call up next? Let me uh, make sure we're not Sally Dunn. Let's call up Sally Dunn. Hey, Sally, how are you doing tonight? Doing good. Um, and what do you have for us? I assume a prompt poem, too. Yep, I've got a prompt poem. And I also wrote this uh, right after the show last week. Excellent. See, I think that's a great a great time to do it. Um, do you usually write it um, You know, after the show? or? Yeah, usually. If, if, if it's, it's going to come out right at all, it usually comes right after the show. I've had a couple where I've struggled through the week and gotten a poem out of it, but they usually don't work that, that well if I don't get them right off the bat. Excellent. Well, I'm so glad you did. So, Is there anything you want to say about this before you read it? Uh, no. Okay, well, go ahead. I have it up for everybody at home. Okay. I have no intention of waiting to pull over at the next stop. Why would anybody expect me to halt at some designated area? It might be fine to pause at a glade. Trees for shade, soft grass beneath my feet and a hamper lunch to share. But there's something exhilarating about being in a car in a ditch at a 45-degree angle, the passenger side up to the roof with snow, the driver's side, a long drop down to a mountain road, and not a soul in sight. Do you remember that day? We broke into someone's cabin, used their phone to call a tow truck, made love on their bed, Stole a jacket and some boots. We had no money to leave them. We didn't have money for the tow truck either. At the car again, some guys in a pickup stopped and asked if we needed help. We told them no, we had a tow truck coming. They said they just passed it, going the other way. They pulled us out for free. We had enough money for gas. We sang all the way home. We were very young. Oh, great story. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sally. That was, uh, I have no intention of waiting. And um, I think it's safe to share because the statute of limitations has probably passed. <laughs> Those yeah, long passed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Sally. It's always a pleasure hearing you read. That was a good one. Thank you. Yep, Bye-bye. Okay, yeah, so it's Sally done with I have no intention of waiting. Um, let's see, let's call up. Actually, you know, I wanted to, um, I keep meaning to share some just poems from Rattle during... Um, during the open lines too. And, um, here I, th- I thought we'd share maybe a couple Neil Postman award for metaphor winners. This one is uh, a very short one. And then I'll get to uh, the next open line caller. This is uh, from the 2009, one of the early Neil Postman award for metaphor winners. And, uh, this is Mike white. Who's going to be on the Rattlecast uh, coming up, I believe this June or July. And, uh, here's this poem NASCAR. By Mike White. NASCAR. Not rolling in liquid fire or pulled apart by physics. Not between commercials. But the way an old dog, half blind, noses around and around, some apple scented, some quiet apple scented, chosen ground. That was NASCAR by Mike White. And, um, Yes, there's the extended metaphors, and some poems that that are winners have an extended metaphor, and some have a uh, a lot of just good metaphor uses. Here's another one. This is prayer for an inmate of RVJDC, and this is Danielle Spratley, winner of the 2012 um, 
Neil Postman Award for Metaphor. Prayer for an Inmate of RVJDC God is probably a Belgian endive, which is a vegetable I don't believe in. A fist-sized, tender, lettuce-looking thing that sprouts from chicory, under covering of dust and darkness. If it's lopped from the root, another grows and grows, until some rot takes hold. That's the point, most likely, when someone cleans and grinds the chicory to make the coffee you're drinking, which looks almost good, thick as ink on a handmade book. But lots of things appear as what they're not. Once you snap the endive's huddled leaves from their whiskered base, there's no hiding the kind of bitterness you've got. And that is another Neil Postman Award from Many for uh, Daniel Spratley's Prayer for an Inmate of RVJDC. Let's go now to another caller. Let's call up Spartacos and see what Spartacos has tonight. Hiya. Spartacos, how are you doing tonight? I'm very well, and you, Tim? Well, you know what? <laughs> I don't think I can fix it. Uh, let's just go to uh, the, the, the poem. What is the poem that you have for us? Um, I put a poem about Stonehenge. Yeah, the and... geometry of Stonehenge. That's really cool. And it's a pullover at the next stop prompt poem. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, why don't you go ahead and read it whenever you are ready? Sure. Geometry of Stonehenge. Pull over at the next stop, I tell myself, at midnight, when I'm traveling back to my place. Little red box, you stand in the middle of the road, like an unborn poem before you disappear. I search for your eyes, and my heart is my last coin for a book of Jules Verne. Hey, folks, you are part of my dreams, an archetype of a living soul in the city of Atlantis, with its geometrical achievements. Next morning, my body feels like a pile of bones, unwilling to move. How do you create a poem in a city? By building many roads for people to be able to travel. I look at the words in a word document on my mobile, and the poem is not there. How can I address a mobile? My dear mobile, inspire me with your advanced technology to create a poem. Or could you say to your mobile, I met your existence in every road that I travel, and you just said that every road exists for the journey. I save myself. I cut myself. It doesn't hurt. The blood, a blooming rose. Four words obstruct my view. Outside, the day is sunny. I look at my mobile screen, not for words. I'm looking for an excuse to get away. On my way to Stonehead a dead fox on the motorway. Death for animals has different meanings than it has for us. When will my journey finish? A battle with my ego builds another road with blood. At Stoneheads, round houses of the builders with chalk walls, a thatched roof and a hair for Neolithic people to tell their story. I see the giant circles. Every moment of life around me seems 
and chanting, I feel part of a religious procession. Stonehenge, a marker of time for dead ancestors to travel together with their stones. I take pictures from different angles. Is this the wrong side? Woodhens was built for the living. A timber circle monument. Birds fly and sit on the lintel that stands on two upright stones, like the symbol pi. I think again of you little folks. Should I let nature guide my ways? Is geometry of prehistoric circles more sophisticated than geometry of modern cities? I wish I could travel in a, a different way, going to Stonehenge through River Avon. I see a boat full of soil and flowers. I feel like a pirate that has waited for too long to sail. I look at the River Avon. Little folks, you exist even when you stop existing. You flow like water in my words. My journey ends, a mirrored sunset on the river. At night, Stonehead is still standing. Wow, that was a great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Spartacus. That was just wonderful on so many great lines and turns and that. And uh, and it feels like a, a bit like you're a, a tourist uh, advertisement for England. It makes me really want to go, your last few poems. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yep, you too. Bye. Yeah, there's just a wonderful poem. Um, and that is Spartacus. Um, nothing I have lists uh, your last name, Spartacos, so um, neither YouTube or the email. So it's, um, and I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's Spartacos. So thanks so much for sharing that. Just a wonderful poem by Spartacos. And um, let's see. Let's, I think, uh, we will have time. So Richard Westheimer uh, said, I've read a lot lately, but if you're looking for extra at the end, I sent one in. And yeah, we got time. Let's do this, Richard. Um, and I think, let's see, Sally Dunn. We have Vicky Miko, too. Um, I will, uh, let's call up Richard. We'll read Vicky's, because I think the, the technical problems. And look what just showed up. It was Brent Stoffer's poem. Hey, Richard, how you doing? Hey, Tim, I'm doing great. Yeah, I've, I've I've, I've been on the airwaves quite a bit lately, but you know, <laughs> well, that's okay. there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm going to try, let me try to fix this. Cause, well, let's see. I think maybe, you know what I'm going to do? Let's see. Guess poet. Just give me one second so I can try to fix your video. It got sure. very strangely sized. It's like blocking me too. Let's see. Guess poet is right there. I just can imagine you and your controls that are there, <laughs> okay, like the so deck of the a, Star Trek. I just couldn't find the handle on it. It's weirdly yeah. shaped. Now we have just two peach blurs. I think this is your, this is one pixel of your forehead that everyone's <laughs> okay. on the screen. The uh, okay, I'm just going to give up. I think the only way to fix it is to, um, is to like undo, like turn off yours and turn back on. But if I put it over on the screen view, you'll pop up. So let's do that. Um, uh, so, uh, I, so, I, I wanted to let you know how great that interview was and you made a point on it that i think from your work in the um uh uh i, I forget exact psych ward we'll call it but that one of the most grievous symptoms of bipolar disorder is not wanting to be treated yeah that was and, always the time it was a um uh, uh, um 
a group home that I worked at. And so we were trying to teach living skills to people um, so that they could take care of themselves and, um, and take, you know, self-medicate and, and, you know, living skills when they needed it and things like that. And um, that was the hardest thing was to get people to stay on it for sure. Yeah. I've, I've attended a lot of lectures on that and it's the one they have all the chemist chemistry, right. For the medications, but the one problem they can't solve is compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a sad thing because people attribute it to folks' character as opposed to understanding it's part of the illness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah. So, so what did you want to share? This is uh, uh, so I'm, I I keep uh, digging back a year uh-huh. and seeing what comes up in the pandemic. And uh, this this was just one of the many things. This was when Brazil was descending into hell, and um, I saw this picture that I had posted on the poem that I'm sending of like their preparation of mass graves. Oh, outside. is that what that is? Oh, wow. So is that a um, like an aerial view? Oh, my yeah. gosh, it is. See, and I looked just, at that. I thought it was some kind of like um, barbecue grate or something. Yeah. Well, when I first saw it, I tree. thought it was some agricultural, as you see in the poem. That, yeah. Um, yeah, it was pretty stunning. Wow. It goes on. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll go ahead and read. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so here is a strange and bitter crop. As a gardener, I was particularly interested in what sort of tillage equipment they used. From the air, I saw furrows, so uniform, a wide whale corduroy of smeared umber. It was clear they planned to plant a monocrop here, row after row prepared for one species to be sown, a hundred hundred seeds, sacks of COVID-ravaged bones, of those who died, crammed in among the living, suffocated by viral load. What strange fruit will grow here? What will sprout from the bodies of favela dwellers? Madness surely grows from such ground as this. The papers say these people died in the periphery, but we who live in the center must never know how they, they lived. How could we? Their kind worked the cane fields. I baked sugar cookies today at home in my splendid isolation. Oh, that's a great poem, and, and really takes us back to that time last year, too. Um, yeah, good stuff. Thanks for sharing that, Richard. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Yep. Have a good night. You too. Yeah, that was Richard Westheimer with uh, this Here's a Strange and Bitter Crop. And this is photo. For those that are not at home, this is an aerial view of um, graves. Uh, I don't know how many. I guess maybe 200 in that in that uh lined up neatly in rows like a farmer would so thanks for sharing that richard i'm gonna now this is really messed up let's see i think i'm gonna try let's see if i switch this okay let me try to try to like restore this hopefully when it uh i know this is riveting riveting there we go. See that? That's, I could have just done that. Anyway, that there was Richard, <laughs> and here is. Uh, let's call up the next guest, though. Let's call up um, because somebody just. Yeah, Brenda Kamarinsky is here. Yeah, let's call up Brenda. We haven't talked to Brenda, did we? No, we didn't. Okay, let's call up Brenda. Hello. Good evening, Brenda. You're live on the air. How are you doing tonight? Good. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. It's another wonderful night of poetry. Uh, what do you have to share with us? 
Um, so it's a, just a short little one. Uh, it's a prompt poem. Great. Well, and, uh, uh, go ahead whenever you're ready for it. Sure. Rescued. Pull over at the next stop. The dog needs to pee or poo. She's shaking anyway. Too many trucks. You know how she feels about them. We're not arguing about leaving her with a friend again. You know how she feels about raised voices. She loves me and will endure a highway of pain if it means she gets to come along as we go away. Oh, that's a sweet poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brenda. Yeah, yeah. and just so people know, she she does well now with cars. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, we, have a, we were just talking about um, whether or not uh, we should take our dog on our road trips this summer because he's a 100-pound German Shepherd, and um, I, he loves it, and I think he would yeah. love it, but I don't know if uh, yeah. he can fit. Like, we won't have the room for suitcases or anything if he comes along. So yeah, think... overrated. Bring <laughs> yeah. the dog. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but thanks for sharing that, Brenda. I love that. Okay. Have a good night. Yep, you too. Yep, there's Brenda Kamarinsky. Let me show, let me share Vicky Miko's poem. And again, Vicky Miko always just includes such great um, visuals, too. So here we have a uh, unintended chain of consequence is Vicky Miko's poem. I'll just read it for her here. And then there's a great photo too. Let me put it on screen. So this is the, uh, the photo version, which we'll get to in just a moment. But let me read the whole poem first. This is Vicky Miko, unintended chain of consequences. Pull over at the next stop, came the shrill out of nowhere, the twist of a neck. Then the sudden yelp of a dog and a jolt linked to the small boy now lying in the gutter, quivering limp, the driver disconnecting the threat of burning oil, electric circuits, and scraping iron, then the shouting eyes of the rushers amplifying the raging sound of rockets over residence, over resistance, fading, then the street light, like everything, stopped blinking. Then we have this uh, image, too. This is a... um, Somebody holding, I think it's a it's a silhouette image of um, on a that looks like maybe a uh, highway overpass um, pillar, and the, it's a it's a silhouette of somebody holding a shirt over his nose with a hat on. There's some barbed wire in the fence. There's a gas station possibly in the background, a car in the background, a chain link fence in the foreground. Just for those watching or just listening, and uh, this is the the haiku or the the hi, haiga. Become scrawled on the abutment ambient noise. Become scrawled on the abutment ambient noise. And become is in quotes, so let me say that emphasizing. Become scrawled on the abutment ambient noise. And that was Vicky Miko's uh, pair of poems. Thanks so much for sharing those, Vicky. Great as always. I love the the images that you come up with too. Uh, Just really bring the live stream to life. Uh, let Let me check to see if we have... Uh, so Carla Schwartz says, um, uh, she asked if I could read this po- poem for her, and we'll close it out that way. This is uh, Carla Schwartz, who, of course, is CB99 Videos. Um, and uh, Let Me Off at the Next Stoplight with uh, Carla Schwartz's prompt poem. Here this one is, Let Me Off at the Next Stoplight, and I'll walk into surgery. No gurney for me, sorry. Just splay me with a spinal and chop out my wrong knee. Pathology has no want of words for what they pull from me, a stoplight that never turns green, Ebernation. Interesting, Ebernation. 
I have to look up that word. I wonder what that means. Ebernation. Ebernation describes a degenerative process of bone commonly found in patients with osteo or non-union fractures. Friction in the joint causes the reactive conversion of the subchondral bone to an ivory-like surface at the site of the cartilage erosion. Interesting. New word I learned today. Thanks for sharing that. And so sorry that you uh, had to have surgery, Carla. I, I wasn't going to mention it. It was in the note that she's recovering from a medical procedure, but then it was in the poem anyway. So um, I can uh, say I uh, hope you get well soon, Carla, and um, and hope you can call in live again uh, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, but great poem. Thanks for sharing that, and uh, do get well soon. Yeah, I think that is going to be it for tonight, and we're just coming up on time anyway, so that's perfect. Now, as I mentioned, <laughs> the prompt is going to be, uh, let me find the prompt. The prompt is going to be, write a poem that starts and ends with the same line. That's next week's prompt. Write a poem that starts and ends with the same line. We already saw one from, was that Paulette Pashabin who uh, had one? that already did that. So Paulette's got to do the same thing over again. But that is your exercise for the week. Write a poem that starts and ends with the same line. And next week's guest on the Rattlecast, like I mentioned at the uh, halftime, is uh, Janae J. Bauer, who is uh, a poet that we published in Rattle number 15, which was back in like 1998, I think. And um, yeah, I think 98, maybe 99. But she has a new book out called The Ekphrastic Writer, Creating Art-Influenced Poetry, Fiction, and Nonfiction. And this is a, uh, a book with a lot of uh, prompts and examples. And we'll talk a lot about, about ekphrastic um, art and the way that uh, art can inspire writing and the connection between the two and, and things like that. And uh, that'll be Rattlecast number 90, Tuesday, April 27th, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, with Janae A. Bauer. And uh, hope to see you then. Hope you have a good rest of your week, and I will talk to you soon. Good night.